from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? This is Politics Meet Me in the Middle. I'm Bill Curtis. And firstly, once again, I'm here with my co-host, Pulitzer Prize-winning author, historian, professor, worldwide lecturer, and veritable Google of everything historical, Ed Larson. Hello, Bill. Great to be here. So visiting us again today, Dan Caldwell, a distinguished professor of political science at Pepperdine University. He holds a Stanford master's and a PhD, as well as a master's degree from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts. He's also taught courses at the Naval Postgraduate School, Stanford, UCLA, and Brown University. And he's the editor of five books, the author of five, including two international relations textbooks. You've heard the expression, he wrote the book? Well, Dan really did. In the subject for today, he actually wrote the textbook on U.S. policy toward Afghanistan. The book is called Vortex of Conflict, U.S. Policy Toward Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iraq, which is published by Stanford University Press. Dan is also a frequent contributor to CNN. Welcome, Dan. Thanks very much, Bill. Good to be here. Well, the U.S. has signed an agreement with the Taliban. It includes a drawdown of U.S. forces, and it also addresses the Afghan release of thousands of prisoners. We lost 2,400 Americans in Afghanistan. At whose hand? Mostly the Taliban. The Taliban killed our people. They're now essentially our ally. Yes, and members of the military with whom I've spoken, who've served in Afghanistan, are very ambivalent about uh, withdrawing under uh, these circumstances. Is this ineptitude at the highest levels in the U.S. or simply a scenario that has no logical conclusion? I think it reflects the complexity of the situation that we were discussing. It's just a very, very complicated region of the world. It has a very complicated social structure, and then it has a complicated uh, history as well. So, Ed, maybe you can give us a quick history of Afghanistan and the United States' role there. Afghanistan is, as our guest knows, a place apart. It has sat up there in the mountains above India and been the vexation of a whole series of Western powers. Be they British, be they Russian, be they American, it has been the great game. Uh, And no matter what country, the British Empire at all of its might couldn't hold Afghanistan. The Russian Empire or the Soviet Empire at its might could not hold Afghanistan. It is a mountainous, remote, frustratingly individualistic land that totally bedevils whoever tries to control it. And the latest one has been us. Can we talk about who is it we're actually negotiating with? Is the Taliban organized enough to have leaders that can actually speak for everyone? Because my understanding is there's so many different radical groups out there that we don't control and they don't control that we're kind of negotiating with just one of the heads. I I think the Taliban now has pretty firm control Mm -hmm. over the uh, military operations in Afghanistan and the lead negotiator is is Haqqani, uh, who published an op-ed sort of uh, praising uh, the uh, negotiations and and declared a ceasefire that has uh, generally been observed. And what do they want other than us out of there? They're tired of the war. I think they also want to have uh, more of a say in the Afghan government to create a kind of coalition government 
And of course, the question is whether it'll be a coalition or whether the Taliban will once again take over in Afghanistan. Well, I think they want total control. I think they want to take over this government just like North Vietnam didn't want an alliance with the South Vietnamese government. They didn't want a part. They wanted to make Vietnam one. And they may they may have the popular support. This may be the only solution that's alternative. Certainly the president of Afghanistan hasn't showed much support outside the capital. But I think they want to take over the country. I think that's, that's a real possibility and uh, perhaps even a probability. My understanding is one of their first demands is going to be that uh, the Afghan government released 5,000 Taliban prisoners. Does that sound like a good idea to you? I think it depends on what the end result of the agreement is. It depends on what the Afghan government gets, what sort of assurances and guarantees they get from the Taliban. Uh, in but is that. any of that real? I mean, assurances and what, I mean, is, are we trying to figure out a way to get out of there where this month it looks great and we really don't care what happens next year or... What does a deal look like? It's supposed to call for withdrawal of about one-fourth of the American forces from 12,000 down to 8,600, and then for a ceasefire between the Taliban, the Afghan government, and the United States, and And then further negotiations. And they would put up with us maintaining almost 9,000 troops in in country? I think that's uncertain, but uh, I think that's uh, uh, very much in the United States' interest. I think in the long run, they'd they'd want the American troops out. What America wants at the minimum is that Afghanistan will not again become a training base for international terrorist groups like al-Qaeda, which will attack other places in the world. I think that's the overriding American objective, or at least one of them, is to maintain a residual counterterrorism special forces in Afghanistan. And I think the second one is to uh, provide the capability to do something about uh, the 150 nuclear weapons in Pakistan if a radical Islamic government was to come to power in uh, Pakistan. And why, why would that happen? Now we've jumped over from Afghanistan to Pakistan. And I do understand that there's something to the tune of a million four hundred thousand refugees from Afghanistan in Pakistan. Are they now a force in Pakistan? When I started to write the book, Bill, that you cited at the beginning of our our podcast, I was just going to write about Afghanistan. I quickly discovered in writing about Afghanistan, I could not write about Afghanistan without writing about Pakistan. The two countries are integrally related. For example, the Taliban was supported in its establishment and throughout the years by the Pakistani intelligence organization, the the Inter-Services Intelligence Group. And as a consequence, the two societies are are very closely related. And one can see those refugees you talk about from Afghanistan going to Pakistan uh, uh, because they are welcome there. And we know the, the two who were most notorious, and that was Osama bin Laden, who sought refuge in Abbottabad, Pakistan, which is essentially the equivalent of West Point for Pakistan. And then secondly, Mullah Omar, the former leader of the Taliban, uh, sought refuge in Quetta, Pakistan. So uh, a number of particularly 
of the uh, uh, radical element of Afghans have gone to Pakistan. It's amazing how porous this border is, where Pakistan actually goes flows right into China on one end and into Afghanistan in the other. And there is no clear border up here. And this whole region, whether it's in Pakistan or in Afghanistan, is controlled by various groups of warlords. And we just can't think of it like we think of the border between, say, Germany and France. We're currently sitting there thinking we're going to go down to, oh, 8,600 troops or so and keep an eye on Pakistan and their nuclear weapons. So at the same time, we're trying to keep a lid on a bunch of terrorists in the mountains of Afghanistan. Um, how do you see this playing itself out? I see, and I would would uh, personally support uh, the long-term commitment of a limited number of American special forces uh, in Afghanistan along the lines of the, the 8,600 that are being discussed because that uh, provides a residual American capability for counterterrorism and also for doing something in Pakistan if a radical... Uh, Islamic government was to take over in Pakistan. See, historically, we've had a relationship with Pakistan. They viewed us as their greatest ally in the world historically, and we had lines of control into their military. But those are fraying, uh, I think. Those are fraying tremendously with the rise of Islam there and also with our current rapprochement with India. And if we don't have those ties with Pakistan anymore— then the importance, as Dan stresses, of troops in Afghanistan that can keep an eye on Pakistan because we can't have the the, the troops in Pakistan. that we, We used to have troops all the way infiltrated through their military, but that's less true now. So I would think that right now India would have something to say about how this proceeds because they want to keep Pakistan in line. I think that's that's true because India considers Pakistan to be its primary threat and Pakistan considers India to be its primary threat. And there are a few places where that is quite evident, uh, most notably over Kashmir on the border between Pakistan and India. And that could, as it has in the past, uh, could escalate to uh, a major conflict between India and Pakistan. Does India recognize the difficulty in having a bunch of radicals in Afghanistan uh, threatening Pakistan, or is it the enemy of my enemy is my friend? No, it recognizes that danger, and it recognizes India also recognizes the danger of having radical Muslims within India itself. So using India as a watchdog for Pakistan and their 150 nuclear weapons is not a good idea. No. If India was to attack Pakistan, I think Pakistan would respond with nuclear weapons. So are we really talking about keeping 8,000-plus soldiers in uh, Afghanistan so that we can keep an eye on nuclear weapons in Pakistan? In part. And the other one is for the the counterterrorism capability to keep groups like al-Qaeda from rising up again or from ISIS from becoming uh, significant in Afghanistan. I'm beginning to understand why Obama looked like crap when he left office, because this is just impossible to sleep at night when you know all these things are going on. But you know what? We're going to be right back. I'm going to go get a drink. It will be okay. 
On Medicine, We're Still Practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. So what you gonna do about it? Okay, we're back with Ed Larson and Dan Caldwell, and here we are theoretically in negotiation. Now, we've got a president that I think all of us feel looks at this as a real estate deal. You know, he never said, uh, I think we should bring home 30% of our troops. He said, I think we should bring home our troops. What do you think is Trump's goal for this situation? And do we get this complex situation enough to actually get to a productive end? Well, I think Donald Trump's goal is the same ironically, as Bernie Sanders, that is to bring all of the American troops home from Afghanistan. I don't think they have an understand. either of them has an understanding of the complexities that we've been talking about in terms of um, Afghanistan, Pakistan, the relationship between the two countries, uh, and the complexities of the societies themselves. And the United States has given great uh, treasure and blood uh, for what uh, we've achieved in Afghanistan. And uh, I would hate to see that uh, um, wasted uh, if the United States withdraws entirely. The only thing I would add is that in the long term, will this again become a breeding ground for international terrorism? Maybe not if in the United States, at least in Germany and Europe and Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. And that's the real question. In addition to everything Dan said, if we pull our troops out, if we turn this over ultimately to the Taliban, will Afghanistan once become, once again, become a safe haven for international terrorism. And, oh, they might promise that they won't do that. But can we believe those promises? Do you think we can, Dan? Well, I think the Taliban has taken action against ISIS. And I think uh, that's uh, a, a positive action on their part. And I think that's part of the negotiations as well, that they've said they would not open up Afghanistan uh, for sanctuaries for terrorists like members of ISIS. So what do you think our goal should be, and who is doing this negotiation for us? I know Trump is not going to sit there and do this himself. What's what's uh, Mike Pompeo's role in this process? Well, the interesting thing is that the lead American negotiator is an Afghan-American, uh, Zalmay Khalazad, who is from Afghanistan, came to the United States, studied in high school on an exchange program in Fresno, and then he came to the United States and earned a PhD at the University of Chicago and uh, was at the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica for a while and then was a professor at Columbia University and then has been a diplomat uh, for the last several decades. So he's the lead American negotiator, and he clearly knows Afghanistan well since he's an Afghan-American. Uh, and he understands the lay of the land. It sounds like he's a smart oh, I guy. Think completely, and yes. He gets Pakistan. He understands yes. why we need to stay there. And yes. he'll think about things before he says, let's get, let's uh, release 5,000 Taliban I think he's a very prisoners. capable negotiator, yeah. And who, who does he report to? He reports to the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. Tell me about his marching orders. I don't know what those are. Can All you right. make a call? <laughs> well, I think I think that he has a hunting license to pursue an agreement in Afghanistan uh, to reduce and perhaps ultimately to withdraw American forces from Afghanistan, 
because that's what the president wants, and therefore that's what the secretary of state wants. If everybody knows he really wants to bring home all the soldiers, tell me, how does a productive negotiation occur? Well, I think that some within the U.S. government, and this gets into a different topic, but some within the U.S. government, civil servants who have been in their positions for decades in the military and intelligence communities and diplomatic communities, recognize the need for a continued presence of American forces in Afghanistan at a reduced level. And the question is whether the advice of uh, those uh, advisors would be followed or whether they would be overruled uh, by the president to withdraw all American forces from Afghanistan. So what you want, Dan, here is you want to hear that we slightly reduce our troops and hopefully that gives Trump enough of his election bump that he's looking for. But you want to know that we're not going to take our eye off this ball again. You want to know that we're basically maintaining control. And what I want to know from you is if you hear that all these troops are coming home, what are you going to do about it? Well, I think I I point out something, first of all, that the number of troops that is called for in the agreement of 8,600 is the same number of troops that were in Afghanistan at the time that Donald Trump um, was inaugurated. Um, He increased the number of troops there, and now we're just taking it back to where we were when he was inaugurated. Uh, But what I would like to see is some kind of residual force, um, not to provide stability in Afghanistan, because I think that's that's proved to be um, impossible. impossible. Uh, what I would like to see is a residual policy to defend American interests, uh, particularly regarding counterterrorism and the possibility of a, of a radical uh, Islamic government taking power in Pakistan and possibly transferring nuclear weapons to uh, radical Islamic revolutionaries. And if the Taliban negotiates a deal here with the U.S. and signs a document, does that mean that the Taliban is actually going to feel obligated to follow that document? That's a real concern to me. And my um, major question is what the agreement will look like and whether it will resemble the 1974 agreement that the United States signed with North Vietnam with uh, perhaps similar tragic results. Again, we're back to Reagan's great line of trust but verify. That's part of what keeping some troops in Afghanistan will do, help to verify it, because, frankly, I think it's very difficult, just as I suppose the Taliban feels it's tough to trust Trump on everything, we should feel it's very difficult to trust the Taliban. I'm going to sound like a hawk here, and I'm not, but at the same time, I'm trying to figure out why we didn't have more of a scorched earth mentality in Afghanistan. This sounds like a place where the whole world would be better off if this place went away. The Russians tried to do that and it failed. No country could have imposed a more brutal scorched earth policy on Afghanistan than the Russians did. And it totally failed. You can't. It doesn't work. No, the United States has has stood for ideals in international relations for most of its history. I was in the military. I was in the Navy. And uh, I took um, an oath not to violate certain norms of war uh, that, that are largely related to just war theory, like killing civilians wantonly and not engaging in torture. Those were absolute prohibitions. Um, And some of those still remain prohibitions um, in the military and in the conduct of war. 
But are we fighting the people of, of Afghanistan or are we fighting these radical groups? And you're saying we can't separate them in, in It's in very the difficult to separate them in a counterinsurgency just as it was in Vietnam because the combatants don't wear uniforms with insignia. They look like the, the peasants, just like in Afghanistan. The, the Taliban does not wear a militarily identifiable uniform, so they look like other residents of Afghanistan. Well, if I can be so outrageous, I think that the women of Afghanistan would be better off if we eradicated the men. Now, um, now, that's that's a problem with the, the peace negotiation is what is the role of women going to be in Afghanistan? Because um, when the Taliban was overthrown, women were given equal rights. And the question is whether they will retain those rights uh, if the Taliban rejoins the government in a coalition government or even ultimately takes over the government. And even though I'd say the women probably will not under a Taliban government, you really just can't. Bill, you can't fairly just lump all the women together. Uh, there are women who treasure those rights, and there are women who don't treasure those rights. Dan, do the women of Afghanistan welcome abuse? Certainly not. I think that they have been literally and figuratively liberated by the war in Afghanistan and the reforms that have been introduced. So, I think the overwhelming majority of women Af in Afghanistan welcome the, the freedoms that they have enjoyed the last 18 and a half years. Al-Haqqani, the head of the Taliban negotiation team, has said that the Taliban will observe all international agreements that Afghan Afghanistan has signed, and that includes a number of agreements calling for uh, equal rights between men and women. And I think that women should have the, the right uh, to live the way that they want to and not prescribed by uh, men uh, in the Taliban. Well, I agree with you, but do you believe him? I don't, no. Neither do I. What's the Taliban's relationship in the UN? The Afghan government is still uh, represented in the United Nations. But uh, the Afghan under... government is not going to be in charge anymore. We're legitimizing the Taliban by this negotiation. Well, as I say, it will be, uh, according to the reports, uh, a coalition government. So... Taliban would be a part of the, the coalition government that would be represented in the United Nations. And do you believe that that would last for any period of time, coalition government? I, I am doubtful that it would last a long period of time, might last a short period of time. If we keep 8,600 troops, as you have prescribed, in the Afghan territories, do you see that as monitoring or is that going to continue to have people take pot shots at our boys, to continue to have a sacrifice of American lives going forward. I think they'll be concentrated in special forces bases, and they won't really be boys because most special forces officers are and, and uh, soldiers are uh, seasoned soldiers, really more in their 30s than in their 20s. They're professional soldiers. Uh, many of them know local languages. Uh, they are very adept at social media and all sorts of ways of trying to influence local populations. Uh, and I think they'll be in, on concentrated bases. They probably will not be uh, walking through cities or walking through uh, villages on patrol. So is it possible that Trump can get what he wants out of this situation to simply go back to the troop count that w existed before he took office? I, I think he can get that, yes, if he wants that. Um, he may want to go back to zero, though, and I think that would be 
uh, really unfortunate for the now, everybody for the now 2.7 million Americans who served in Iraq or Afghanistan the last 18 and a half years. What would these troops, these 8,000 troops that are left, be doing? Would they be protecting against the rise of some terrorist groups that would use Afghanistan as a base for attacking Saudi Arabia or Israel or the United States? Or would they also be ensuring that you'd have some sort of a fair government, what we perceive as a fair government, what you're describing as a fair government that would protect women's rights, et cetera, in Afghanistan? And I don't see them doing the final one of those three. No. We've tried that. It hasn't worked. And I think that's the, the reason that military leaders themselves have proposed uh, a figure around 8,000 to 9,000 troops for the counterterrorism and then the surveillance um, function and to do something about uh, uh, Pakistani nuclear weapons if needed. So, in effect, the Taliban could take over the local government, do their will in Afghanistan so long as they didn't export terrorism with third parties and as long as we could monitor Pakistan. That's going to be the cost for the United States reducing its number of troops. So we only have a couple of minutes left, but in the meantime, I can't help but ask Dan this. Who is the commander-in-chief that you would most like in charge of this situation? The one with the most foreign policy and international relations experience is Joe Biden. As eight years as vice president and 36 years in the Senate, uh, most of that time spent on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And particularly in Afghanistan, right? Yes. Yeah, he's been to Afghanistan a number of times. Uh, let's talk about that next time, Dan. Will you come back and visit us again? Great. Uh, Dan Caldwell and Ed Larson, uh, you've really made sure that I wouldn't sleep tonight. Good night. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends and let us know how we're doing by leaving a comment. It really helps if you give us a five-star rating, and we really appreciate it. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Mike Thomas, audio engineering by Michael Kennedy, and the theme music was composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Thanks for listening. It will be Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.